President Trump tried to call a witness in our investigation, a witness you have not yet seen in these hearings. That person declined to answer or respond to President Trump's call and instead alerted their lawyer to the call. Their lawyer alerted us. And this committee has supplied that information to the Department of Justice. Let me say one more time, we will take any effort to influence witness testimony very seriously. That was Liz Cheney dropping one more nugget at the end of Tuesday's January 6th committee hearing. New evidence that Donald Trump may be contacting witnesses who are being called to testify in an apparent effort to influence what they might say. If true, it's a federal crime. And Cheney's statement that the Department of Justice had been alerted immediately set off speculation about another possible avenue for Attorney General Merrick Garland's prosecutors to pursue. As the committee moves to wrap up its extraordinary series of hearings next week in prime time, the path to a possible prosecution of Donald Trump only seems to be expanding, not just in Washington, but in Atlanta, where Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is accelerating her own investigation. We'll talk to somebody who has a unique perspective on the Willis probe, Charlie Bailey, a former prosecutor who used to work for Willis, and is now running for a lieutenant governor against a Republican lawmaker deeply involved in Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And Victoria Bassetti, our other co-host, can't be with us today, but much to talk about with the um, latest January 6th committee hearing. It was riveting, as they all are, with you know lots of new nuggets. But the Liz Cheney uh, sort of bombshell, I put that in quotes because we'll discuss some of the limits of it, seems to be getting the most attention at the moment. And, you know, clearly uh, we had evidence previously from Cassidy Hutchinson about possible attempts of witness tampering by Trump and or his allies. This seems to add to that. But, you know, there are limits here. I mean, what was Trump planning on saying to this witness? It's not clear he said anything. And absent that, a mere phone call, I'm not sure exactly why everybody is as excited as they seem to be if we don't know what it was. We don't know who Donald Trump called and we don't know what he said, if anything. Yeah. I mean, I think we are going to know who he called. Um, I think that will come out. The uh, committee and Liz Cheney in particular have been very skilled at leaving these little kind of suspenseful nuggets at the end of uh, each one of these hearings, keeping everybody hanging on and coming back for the next episode. (laughs) You know, and I will say that in the past when she's done that, they have backed it up. So in the very first uh, hearing when they talked about pardons, for example, and and uh, we we kept we were asking the same question. Well, where are these pardons? Well, they did deliver. This one, based on what she has already said, I think is going to be more uh, challenging in terms of delivering uh, because it certainly sounded like 
you know, this this witness did not take the call. He did not speak to her. He or she, uh, but or, go or, ahead. Uh, yeah. He or she. And so to make any kind of credible witness tampering case, um, yeah. you're, you're going to have to have actual, you know, what Donald Trump said. And in, in other words, if he had called up to say, I just want you to testify truthfully. Well, that's not a crime. That's not wit- witness tampering. Yes, it could be viewed by some people as uh, in- intimidating, but it's witness. not. Yeah, yeah, but it's right. it's but it's not enough. Well, what what I wrote on Twitter yesterday, right after Cheney had said this, is you know the smart move. You know what Cheney said is. We got alerted to this. The witness didn't take the call, alerted her lawyer. Her lawyer alerted the committee. The committee alerted DOJ, right? Well, the smart thing to do would have been for the FBI, DOJ, to have the FBI get in touch with the witness, have the witness take the call and Tape it. So in other words, Saratif- in other words yeah, the, the witness would have had they- to have gotten back to Trump, say, sorry, I missed your call. Right. I'm around now. <laughs> and then he would, yeah. Yeah, on Truth Social, he would <laughs> he would type the all caps, entrapment. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But, now, look, you know, some skeptics out there can say, well, how do we know that didn't happen? Well, maybe it did or maybe it hadn't happened yet. Uh, this seems to have been something that just sort of came to the attention of the committee. Yeah. And did Cheney blow a possible opportunity for the FBI to wire this witness and take the call from Trump? You know, just just the, asking. The, the one thing I will say is that we are looking at this one anecdote in isolation and If you look at the other evidence of witness tampering that the committee has put forth, including people apparently leaning on Cassidy Hutchison saying, we know you'll be loyal. And and, we still don't know exactly who did that. We don't yet. But, you know, and and, and Trump reads the transcripts of these depositions and so on and so forth. If that turned out to be a strong case and if there was evidence that Trump himself had put up these people to call uh, these witnesses. And then you take the evidence that Trump had called one of the witnesses the night before the witness testified. Well, then that is more evidence that would help a case. So in that sense, it could end up being valuable, but that's a we're a long ways from that. Right. We are. So meanwhile, we're down here in Georgia this week where a lot is going on in the Fonnie Willis investigation, which is running on a parallel track with the Justice Department investigation. And it does seem at this point that Willis is a lot further along than DOJ itself. Right. I mean, as we reported last week, she's subpoenaed Rudy Giuliani and um, Michael Flynn and Lindsey Graham, because Lindsey Graham called Brad Raffensperger after the 2020 election and asked about ways to uh, remove absentee ballots presumably because of, you know, faulty signature matches or whatever it was the Trump people were complaining about. And um, while DOJ and and also the fake electors, 
the, the scheme, the December 14th fake elector scheme. In Some which, of which was centered here in Georgia. In, in Georgia, 16 electors meet in a room in the state capitol who keep the press out, tell them it's about an education meeting when it actually was a meeting to anoint themselves, the electors from the state of Georgia, and then send that list to the National Archives. I, um, you know, our guest is kind of going to has a keen interest in how that turns out, because one of those fake electors is Burt Jones, a state senator, a MAGA backing state senator who was one of those fake electors and has been subpoenaed by both Fonnie Willis and the Department of Justice. And that's just a small taste of how a Trump indictment in Georgia could just rock politics uh, down here uh, going forward. I mean, what kind of an effect will it have on the gubernatorial race, which is one of the most high profile races in the country? Right now, Fonnie Willis indicts a Republican candidate for lieutenant governor in the midst of the election. Now, you know, she may hold off. I think what she told us when we interviewed her is she would not indict once early voting starts, which is October, which is October. But she also told us that, you know, in her ideal world, she would wrap this up, that the special grand jury would wrap this case up. Uh, by perhaps late August or early September, then they have to, you know, they got to write a report, make the recommendation. It could move quickly. It conceivably could move quickly enough so that, you know, there could be an indictment or indictments but before that October date. We well, we know we know that the Department of Justice has, you know, policies where they won't indict during election season. And I think they, uh, you know, it's not limited to the start of early voting. I think by if, they, if you don't indict by Labor Day, you pretty much are not going to bring an indictment. Um, I don't uh, think that's politically. Bonnie Willis follows the, the attorney, Justice Department the, the US guidelines. Attorney's no, manual. she doesn't. Yeah, but I think it's. I think we can say with some confidence that she does seem to be further along and at this point more aggressive than the Department of Justice. Oh yeah, I, I don't think there's any any question of that. Doesn't mean that in the end she's going to indict Donald Trump, but she's going to have a decision. I think quite a bit before. Uh, the Justice Department is is ready. I mean, I don't. The Justice Department still has not really, you know, brought any of the really key witnesses in no, to testify before the grand jury. Yeah. As far as we know, I mean, right. you know, is you know, it, they have done some uh, taken some aggressive steps uh, in terms of uh, seizing cell phones. I think uh, uh, John Eastman's cell phone um, and uh, they raided Jeffrey Clark's home while he was in his pajamas, right. uh, seized evidence there. And, and then the question is, if if she were to indict Trump before the Justice Department did, what then happens? And if the Justice Department is actually um, on a path to indicting uh, Trump as well, you have these you know, dueling criminal cases. Does one, pardon the pun, trump the other? Um, you know, do they, well, I, they don't I would merge think, the cases? I would think what the happens? Justice Department case would, would, would be preeminent, obviously. But look, there's a different calculus here. Merrick Garland, at the the attorney general, does have to factor in the precedent set by indicting a former president, and you know what 
impact that will have on the country, constitutional democracy and all that at the same time has to factor in what if you don't indict um, Donald Trump when with all this evidence of apparent criminal conduct, are you setting a precedent there that you're that no president that that no president can ever be charged with a crime? right. Right. Yeah, I mean it's an excruciatingly difficult position, I think. And, and, and Fannie Willis doesn't have any of those she, considerations. She doesn't. She She's doesn't. not worried about but that. But before we even get there, I, you know, notwithstanding all the revelations in the most recent January six hearings, it still is going to be a difficult case to bring. At least if you're talking about seditious conspiracy and directly tying. Trump to the violence that took place. They are getting closer. There's no question about that. And there's certainly enough to justify a very aggressive investigation. But I don't think I don't think they've nailed it yet. And uh, it's hard to know whether whether they ever will. So we'll just have to see. All right. Well, on that point, we've got a good guest to talk about the Georgia developments. Charlie Bailey, a uh, the Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor, running mate of Stacey Abrams. So let's get to it. Okay, we now have with us the Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor in Georgia, Charlie Bailey. He also worked closely as a former prosecutor with Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney who was investigating Donald Trump and his post-election conduct. Charlie, welcome to Skullduggery. Well, it's pleasure to be here, Mike and Dan. Uh, thank you for making the trip to Georgia to make it happen. So obviously there's a lot going on. One big question, Georgia is playing a central role in the investigations into Trump's conduct. What will be the impact in Georgia if Fonnie Willis, as a lot of people expect her to do, does in fact indict Donald Trump? Well, what's the political impact? you know, I, I think it is, if she, if she does decide to do that, um, obviously it's going to be a monumental prosecution, maybe the biggest prosecution in the history of the country. And so I think folks that have given aid and comfort to that, I would say, un-American activity, that unpatriotic act- activity, are not going to fare well. When it comes, and we have no idea if it's going to come or when it is going to come, but you know, in Georgia, in a state in the South where the vote has been hard fought uh, for a lot of people, um, it is, you know, it's sacrosanct. And so it strikes at the heart of democracy. It also strikes at the heart of the pride that uh, we in the South have about the New South to come in and, and say, you know, you get to decide whose votes matter, whose votes count, whose votes don't. So uh, if we have, if there is a prosecution, you know, I think that it will be a touchstone point for this state and a time for choosing. So, Charlie, I'm interested. You're out on the campaign trail all the time. You're talking to voters. Uh, We've all been focused on, captivated by the January 6th committee hearings. And Georgia has been kind of front and center um, in those hearings uh, because of, obviously, President Trump's call to the Secretary of State down here, but also uh, because it was the kind of the object of so many of the wildest uh, conspiracy theories and 
and you know rumors about uh, false rumors about election fraud. Of course, Ruby Freeman and particularly her daughter Wanda Shea Moss uh, uh, testified about how those conspiracy theories upended their lives, sent them essentially into hiding. As you talk to voters uh, down here, what is your sense of how this is playing on the campaign trail? Is it something that, that's talked about? I mean, um, when you're interacting just with average Georgians, does this come up at all? It does. And let me say, I mean, what bravery those women, I mean, to stand, uh, you know, election workers are not are not highly paid in, in individuals, uh, but they're a bulwark of our democracy. And so uh, I'll say she made, you know, they made Georgia proud. And that is an example of, of patriots. That's what patriotism is. It is breaking through, and, and not everybody brings it up, but it is kind of this ever-present, I don't know if cloud is the right word, but everybody's aware of it. And, you know, I think it's two things I kind of think about. One, for so long, Georgia was not thought of politically, you know, on the, on the national stage. I mean, not since 1992 that a Democrat win uh, the electoral votes here. And it was an afterthought. People started coming to get money. You know, people would come to Atlanta, get money, fundraise, but nothing other than that. So the attention that really started four years ago and then hit a crescendo in 20 and really hasn't tailed off. I mean, it's just kind of been straight on through. Um, and one, in some ways, so a lot of people were like, I have so many conversations where voters are like, this is crazy. This is not what I grew up with. You know, this level of attention, the number of ads, you know, so in one way, it's like a very foreign thing for Georgians. But, in, you know, in another way, there is, a, there is a pride about it has been more difficult. And this isn't like, you know, a revelation, but it has been more difficult for certain kinds of folks, particularly black folks in Georgia, to vote over the years. And maybe folks around the country, maybe they understand, maybe they don't, how it strikes. And I think that the reason and what I hear from people the reason that Donald Trump so focused on Georgia, and he and he was the other swing states that he was, but there was an inordinate amount of attention on Georgia. I think a lot of people that have grew up in the South and grew up in Georgia understand a lot of that has to do with race. And it is about whose votes count. This is an ugly part that has gone back in our history years. So it's not new. To come in and say, well, Fulton County couldn't have done that. And those people, you know, they couldn't have gotten all those black people to vote. They must be doing something illegal. That is not new. That is old. And it's ugly. um, And it's anti-American. So I think a lot of the people I talk to have a pride in the new South, in the new Georgia, and and a defensiveness against outsiders, the new outsiders coming in trying to tell people, Again, I've said it probably four or five times, whose votes get to be count, counted and whose votes don't. So there's a real, there's a defensiveness, I think, in a lot of uh, voters mm-hmm. I hear from. Now, you have a pretty unique vantage point to look at these questions. Your opponent for lieutenant governor, Burt Jones, is one of those who played a direct role in the fake elector scheme that is under investigation. In fact, he does appear to be in the crosshairs of these investigations. Tell us what his role was and what you're saying about that on the campaign trail. Sure. So what's publicly available, you know, and I, I don't, uh, I don't know 
I don't have all the evidence that the investigators, whether it be federal or state, have on this. But what's publicly available is that he was a false elector, one of the false electors. And so he was one of those that was saying there was fraud, saying we needed to overturn the election, saying we needed to call a special session. This is post-November, obviously, and before January. And uh, saying we need to call a special session to overturn the election and give the electoral votes, which is an entirely illegal you know, concept. And when uh, he was unsuccessful doing that, he was a part of this scheme or conspiracy or whatever it was to sign falsely uh, these documents saying, no, I'm, I'm the true elector. I'm one of the true electors. Uh, Donald Trump won this state. And we know through reporting that the night before January 6th, uh, he was having dinner with Vice President Mike Pence. So Burt Jones was having dinner with Mike Pence the night before January 6th. Yes. Do we know what was said? What's public is very, you know, minimal. There is a, there's a tweet that he deleted of a picture of him and Mike Pence, you know, having dinner. And he just says, you know, he's got a big day tomorrow and thank him for his service. I mean, there's a screenshot of it. So what was discussed? I have no idea. Burt Jones doesn't tell me, you know, and neither does Vice President Pence. Um, and I don't know if anybody else knows, but that is publicly available reporting. Now, to the extent he had other involvement, again, I'm not privy to all that. That's just what's been in, you know, the the public uh, space. And let me let me be clear in what I've said about it, and I'll continue to say, you know, you know what makes you an American. And I don't mean to be lecturing about civics or anything like that. But what makes you an American is, you know, not what ethnicity you are. It ain't where you were born. It's not where your parents were born. It's not your political party. It is the idea that we have a representative democracy, that everyone is equal, and we have been trying to move towards that more perfect union, that we did not start that way. Everyone is equal. Everyone gets a vote. At the end of the day, the votes are counted. They all count the same. And then the winner is the winner, and the loser goes on. And to come in and say, no, the voters don't matter, and I get to decide, and my party gets to decide, who wins this election, who doesn't, that's authoritarian. It's the most un-American thing you can do. And it strikes at the very heart of representative democracy, which strikes at the very heart of what it is to be an American. So he was one of the 16 fake electors who were meeting at the state capitol on December 14th in secret, anointing themselves electors pledged to Donald Trump. Correct. Correct. What has he said so far about his role? Well, he has said in many speeches uh, how he's very proud of having fought to uh, get to the bottom, you know, to get a special session so uh, we can get to the bottom of what happened and, and overturn these results. And that he was, he, he's crowed in speeches about how he lost his chairmanship, you know, because of his actions. To, you know, he did that at a speech uh, in, um, in Rome with Marjorie Taylor Greene, to much applause. So, you know, what has he said beyond that? He hasn't said much beyond that, at least as far as I know, publicly. But he has bragged about his involvement and his attempt to stop the steal. He's, uh, he went out to Arizona uh, when they were doing that audit and everything and inspe- I don't know, he was inspecting ballots or something like that so he he is fully 
embraced and promulgated this lie that is a dangerous lie. I mean, it, it goes right back to the danger of those election workers, those Georgia election workers. That didn't happen in the vacuum. It happened because of people like Burt Jones that did this thing that was, uh, was un-American. Now, since he's in a general election with me, he doesn't respond to, you know, the, the direct charge. Surprise, surprise. You know, he, he whines about being attacked and, and that kind of thing, and it's politically motivated and all that. So he, he is one of the uh, few Republicans running for office in Georgia who was endorsed by Donald Trump— and won in the primary because we were down here, you know, uh, Brian Kemp completely just squashed uh, David Perdue. And of course, Brad Raffenberger run, won his primary against uh, Jody Heiss. And most of them actually, despite the fact that they were endorsed, lost. But Burt Jones won. Is he touting that out there on the campaign trail? Is that a net positive? Will you go after him for uh, having been endorsed by uh, Donald Trump? Or is that something you'd stay away from? Oh no no we're we're going to point it out. I mean we're going to and he's he was very he's been very proud of it. He's he, he had it in advertisements. Advertisements he had it on yard signs in his in his primary. He doesn't say as much now but he's not saying as much now period. And you know neither one of us are on TV right now and I I'm not aware of any radio ads or anything like that. But we are going to point that out to the people of Georgia because you know and it's not about it's not about what your political party is. It's about when, when the time came to take an action, not about a political party, but it stood up for the foundations of our democracy. What did you do? And he sided with a guy who attacked, and he helped him attack the foundation. So, we, yeah, we're going to point that out. And I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know if he's going to act like he never knew Donald Trump or something like that. But, you know, the tape doesn't lie. So no question that both the Justice Department in Washington and the Fulton County DA uh, under Fannie Willis is investigating the fake elector scheme. If he gets indicted, what happens? Is that disqualifying? Well, I would say his conduct is disqualifying now. It's not like a—I mean, we—you know, Jones and I have um, a number of policy disagreements, you know? We could probably spend three hours talking about them. We won't. Um, <laughs> But this isn't about policy. And that's what, you know, it's not just I have to say, it's like, it's not, not like I'm saying he's disqualified from being lieutenant governor because he's not for Medicaid expansion. You know, I mean, that's a bad policy position he has. He's not disqualified for being lieutenant governor, but the actions of trying to overthrow the government are disqualifying to hold public office, much less the number two position in the state. But how does all this play? I mean, for some in Georgia, it might help him if he gets indicted. <laughs> well, yeah, for some, for some, you know, we've got a big state, a lot of, di- a lot of different uh, opinions. So y- he is not automatically kicked off the ballot for, for being indicted. He would have to uh, withdraw himself from the ballot, which I, you know, would be very shocked uh, to see that. I mean, I don't think it's going to play well. I don't think his conduct is going to play well. This is a 50-50 state. I mean... I was a statewide nominee four years ago. I got 49% of the vote. I lost 51-49, running against an incumbent. Stacey lost about, you know, she got 49 too. Two years later, Biden wins the state, famously, in in, uh, 11,000 votes. 
And then Senator Warnock wins 51-49. Senator Ossoff wins 50.5 to 49.5. This is a 50-50 state any way you cut it. It probably will be for the foreseeable future. So you have a – it certainly is going to be a big negative uh, for the people that that call themselves Democrats or lean, you know, Democratic – of course, there is a core of a, a you know a very an extreme core, maybe twenty eight percent, thirty percent that they don't care if he's indicted for something like this. They think it's good that he did that, but there is a big chunk in the middle that is is, is not going to go along with this, and that for them, even if uh, they call themselves. Republicans, or maybe they used to be Republicans and now they're independents. That kind of conduct is disqualifying for them, and um, and it should be substantively. It should be, but you know, politically it will be. So, Charlie, this is a lot of people think an almost historically difficult environment for Democrats in in this cycle because record high inflation, um, gas prices. Uh, Joe Biden um, has, you know, almost historically low <laughs> approval ratings, you know, down in the 30s, polls showing that, you know, only 25, 30 percent of Democrats want him to run for reelection. Uh, how does that affect someone running for lieutenant governor uh, as a Democrat in, in Georgia? Um, how do you how do you deal with those uh, headwinds? To what extent do you have to deal with headwinds, national headwinds like that? There are, in Georgia, there are headwinds, there are tailwinds, there are crosswinds. I mean, there is eight, nine different factors, if not more, that uh, go into this this political season. I don't know that it's going to have that great of an effect in in Georgia. And I think Georgia is maybe a little bit different in this sense. I think mostly because you've got a very popular U.S. senator running for re-election, and Senator Warnock, latest polling, has him up on uh, Herschel Walker, 54-44. That was Quinnipiac. And then leader Stacey Abrams running for governor, who's uh, very popular in her own right in a, in a tight, you know, that same poll had her 48-48 with, uh, with an incumbent uh, governor. They are both beloved by many people in this state, and they're not, as you would call it, you know, generic Democrats. You know, they have a profile that is earned based on their work over the years. And be- because you have that, and in that same Quinnipiac poll, the president is at 33%. So there is a distinction between all of that, the negative, which I think much of it is not the president's fault, but it's just environment, you know, the environment that we're in. And some of it's coming from our own party, frankly, my own party, is not attached to Senator Warnock and Leader Abrams. And and therefore, it's almost like that's a, like a circuit breaker or a seawall against what are those national headwinds? Now, would it be better if, you know, snap our fingers and the, the president's at 52% in Georgia? Well, yes, of course. Like, you know, but I think mainly because of the two people we have leading our ticket, um, you are going to see, I think, when the dust settles in November, a lot less of a national effect on Georgia and more of a, we got enough going on here that our voters... Uh, and our citizens are going to making going to be making decisions about these races and not about you know how how much should have been in you know the infrastructure infrastructure package or whatever. Mm-hmm. All that said, what are you uh, what is Stacey Abrams saying about 
Joe Biden at this point, if you're saying anything about President Biden? Well, I mean, I'm, I support the president. Um, and I think they've, in, in very tough circumstances and not that long, I mean, it's only been um, a year and, what, how many months? Six months? In seven months? In, in uh, tough circumstances, you know, done a good job. But my race and uh, Stacey's race against Kemp and Senator Warnock's race against Herschel Walker, frankly, isn't about Joe Biden. It's about the choice that the people of Georgia have between those candidates. My race is a choice between me and Burt Jones, a man that was a false elector and tried to substitute his will for the people of Georgia's will, a man that doesn't believe uh, even in an exception for rape, incest, or the life of the mother when it comes to abortion, a man that has underfunded the police during his time in the state Senate. You know, we got a GBI under that, under their control, we've got a GBI that's got one person testing ballistics for the entire state. We got 10, 11 month backlogs on the testing of ballistics as we have violent crime rising in our state. One data point, when President Biden came to Atlanta to talk about voting rights, the signature issue of your running mate, Stacey Abrams, she didn't even show up. Yeah, and I think there was, I haven't talked to her about that, but my, my understanding is there was Something previously planned. Yeah, the old scheduling conflict excuse. The president of the United States comes to your home state to talk about your signature issue, and you have a scheduling conflict? I can only, that's, that's, that's what I read in the, in the papers, and I haven't had a discussion with her about it. So, you know, uh, I, I know that Stacey Abrams supports the president, as do, do I. Do, yeah, it does raise the question, if he were to come down to, to offer a campaign for you and, uh, and Stacey Abrams, you would say? 1,000%. Yeah. He's my president. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Be proud uh, to. Let's change the subject here for a moment and talk about the uh, Fulton County investigation into Donald Trump. Uh, the, I think it feels like in the last few weeks, uh, people across the country, Democrats in particular, have gotten really interested in, in uh, Fonnie Willis. Um, partly because the uh, January 6th committee has um, been focusing on, on Georgia, but also because her uh, grand jury, special grand jury, has been issuing um, high-profile high subpoenas. You know her extremely well. You worked with her. You were on trials with her. Tell us about uh, Fonnie Willis and, based on what you know, how she will and is approaching the most high-profile criminal investigation in the country. Well... Fonnie's one of the best attorneys, you know, I've ever known. Maybe the best prosecutor. Uh, Why? I've ever known. So, <clears throat> on top of being brilliant and, a, and an over-over-preparer, I mean, she's somebody that does the work. There's some trial attorneys that don't. She has this core, and I think, you know, some folks that are involved in politics, or so she's not a politician, I mean, she's a district attorney. She's, she's a prosecutor's prosecutor. Um, but some folks that are involved in politics and cover politics have a cynicism when someone says, like she does, that lady justice is blind. It's something she says a lot. And they're like, okay, yeah, whatever. Like, you're supposed to say that because you're a prosecutor. But it is something that is, like, in her core. Um, and it's not something new to this investigation, and that's what I would say about this investigation, but something that's been throughout her career, whether she was prosecuting somebody that committed a rape against some person that no one ever cared about, no one ever knew the name, it was never in the paper, 
And that's the same thing here with this case. And I've said to people, what has Fani said about it? They said, what do you think she's going to do? I said, what has she said? What she said is, we're going to gather all the evidence, which I think, you know, everybody sees her doing uh, diligently. And when we've gathered all the evidence, we're going to, I'm going to take a look at the law. Uh, we're going to apply it to those facts. And then I'm going to make a decision about whether a crime or crimes were committed. And it's not going to matter who the people are. It isn't going to matter who the people are. That is what she said. And so that's what I tell people is that's what, I mean, that's what she's going to do. And anybody that knows Fonnie would say that's flat out, you know, that's the truth. That's the way she operates. That said, you know what others might say. You worked with her on her campaign. You helped her get elected DA. She's raising money for your campaign. She held a fundraiser for you recently. A lot of people are going to say, look, of course this is political. She's a Democratic DA. She's going after the opponent of her friend, the candidate who helped her get elected in the first place. Well, they, anybody says that doesn't know Fonny very well and is not paying attention to the facts. And again, we don't know as we sit here what she's going to well, do. Oh no, Burt Jones is under. Yeah, because of what Burt Jones did. <laughs> Fonny Willis, neither Fonny Willis nor I uh, convinced Burt Jones uh, to say, I'm going to falsely swear that I'm an official elector for the state of Georgia. And ain't nobody, you know, tell him to do that. He's never asked my advice. And uh, he's never asked Fonny's on it. And he did it before Fonny was even DA. I mean, this, that happened in, in, in December. Um, also, I wasn't running for lieutenant governor. <laughs> I was running for attorney general. Uh, and, um, you know, and when she decided to open an investigation into this, all this conduct, I was running for attorney general. By, by its very, you know, by logic, it couldn't possibly be connected to anything about lieutenant governor. At that point, Burt had not even announced for lieutenant governor. So it, it just isn't, you know, people can say, you know, the sky is orange, and I guess sometimes it is, but when it's blue, it's blue. So there's no connection there. Fonnie is my friend, um, and I'm proud that she's my friend, and I'm proud that I endorsed her for district attorney way before Donald Trump decided to do all this. I'm proud that she won. Um, I'm proud to have her endorsement and any help she can give and we need to raise more money so I needed to help raise me any more money you know <laughs> okay skullduggery listeners Charlie Bailey at charlieforgeorgia.com that's the website you described her as the best prosecutor in the country what's she like in a courtroom so I think a lot of I, I think a lot of trial lawyers would say the same thing the most effective trial lawyers um, and that's what prosecutors have to be um, they're not the only trial lawyers but, but, uh, but they are trial lawyers is be authentic in themselves. I think sometimes people, you know, try to take on some sort of um, what they think a trial lawyer or a prosecutor should act like, a facade, something they saw on TV, and that's not effective. Fani is, is the same in a courtroom as she is sitting down and, and if she was sitting right here and talking to us. She is direct. She is funny. Uh, she is engaging. She respects people. And so that's a big part of like a jury is like, you know, paying attention to what they might want to know from this witness, you know, being vulnerable with a jury in an opening and say, I don't know everything that's going to come out. We'll find out together, you know, um, but being blunt with a jury when 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 she knows like what they might be thinking about something and say, now, listen, I know you might be thinking this, 
But let me tell you what the deal is and being natural like you would with your friend in the living room. And that is like on top of her brilliance and the preparation, the attention to detail, which you don't even get to do the performance if you don't do all that. But her level of skill with connecting with a jury and telling a story is one of the best I've ever seen. Makes me think if um, the grand jury does indict uh, President Trump that maybe she should try the case herself. What do you think? I mean, I, she's going to be mad at me if I, if I try to give her that work. But, uh, I mean, I don't know that you're going to find a better trial lawyer to do it. I just, but, you know, I'm not going to make that decision for her. She'll make the decision, and they'll have, if that comes to pass, they'll have uh, skilled attorneys to handle it. So just to wrap up here, uh, the eyes of the country will be on Georgia in the midterms. In fact, uh, the outcome of the uh, governor's race uh, may have a lot to do with how things play out in 2024. Whoever becomes governor can do a lot to influence how the race in this state turns out. How do things look to you right now? I think it is like races are in, in Georgia these days and for, for, for the foreseeable future. It is, uh, it is a toss-up. It is a jump ball. What other kind of comparison do we want to make? It is, we are a 50-50 state, and um, uh, I, I believe that Stacey Abrams is going to win. I believe she's going to get elected. I believe I'm going to get elected lieutenant governor, and Senator Warnock is going to get reelected. Um, but we're going to have to fight to do it, and we're going to have to – this is going to be an election where the people of Georgia have a choice between folks that have been given a whole lot of power for 20 years in this state, and they haven't done anything – to alleviate the economic burdens that folks face, the de- deficits they have in, in, in health care coverage. We got 600,000 Georgians don't have health care coverage. As I mentioned before, we got a GBI that has years long backlogs in the testing of sexual assault kits. That's the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. The Georgia, yes, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. 10, 11 month backlogs in the testing of, uh, of ballistics. We got eight rural hospitals that have closed in the last 10 years, and I'm from a rural part of the state. They got a choice between folks that have done a very good job of taking care of their uh, special interest buddies that have a whole lot of money and not done a very good job at all with taking care of the people of Georgia. And on top of that, folks like my opponent who said, I don't even care about your representative democracy or what you think about anything. I'm going to make the decision myself. That's going to be the choice in November. And I believe that the people of Georgia, as they've done in January 2021, in November 2020, is going to choose the side of an egalitarian society, a representative democracy, and a government that cares about the people and not the powerful.